Welcome in. Very glad to have you. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 6. Right in the middle of the Scriptures. If you turn there, you might find Psalms in the middle, and then there's Proverbs after that, then the book of Ecclesiastes. We are a church that typically, about 70 to 80% of the time, are going passage by passage through uh, books of the Bible. That's the way that we uh, look at the Scriptures together every week, and we've been going through Ecclesiastes. We will take a break uh, for Easter next week, but today we're going to be in Ecclesiastes chapter 6, the very end of the chapter, and then the first 12 verses of chapter 7. And continuing in a theme that we've had from Solomon about reality. A couple of weeks ago, we said, um, we talked about the fear of God and how that is a reality check uh, for us to live in that reality. Well, one of the themes that Solomon keeps developing is that make sure that we're not living on the surface, that we're not living in a superficial way, uh, but that we're actually living in reality. We're going to pick up that theme again today. Uh, as Solomon talks about this, that reality is better than the alternative that we're going to look at together. But let's start reading in verse 10 of chapter 6 through verse 12 of chapter 7. Let's read this together. Whatever has come to be has already been named, and it is known what man is, and that he is not able to dispute with one stronger than he. The more words, the more vanity. And what is the advantage to man? For who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of his vain life, which he passes like a shadow? For who can tell what will be after him under the sun? A good name is better than precious ointment, and the day of death than the day of birth. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. For this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart." Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of face the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. It is better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of the fools. This also is vanity. Surely oppression drives the wise into madness and bribes corrupts the heart. Better is the end of a thing than its beginning, and the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the heart of fools. Say not, why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. Wisdom is good with an inheritance, an advantage to those who see the sun. For the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money. And the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. This is the word of the Lord. So a confession this morning is that uh, I, I dislike graduation speeches. Um, I don't know if that's anybody's favorite piece of oratory in the room, uh, but graduation speeches at the end of a semester are something that have always rubbed me the wrong way. And it's that, that, that optimism, that stifling kind of optimism that sometimes just uh, gets to me. I remember uh, the, the one that was the worst to me, and sorry if graduation speeches are kind of your thing or something, uh, or if you gave one one time, you're a valedictorian. 
But I remember one that my sister was graduating. I actually don't remember if it was her high school graduation or college. But the valedictorian got up to give the speech, and she went straight for the traditional uh, message at a graduation speech. She started out with a little bit of Robert Frost, as one does. Two roads diverged in the yellow wood. Sorry I could not travel both. Be one traveler long I stood and looked down one as far as I could to where it bent in the undergrowth. And she went, I've memorized it in, in elementary school. It stuck with me through the years. But she goes through the whole poem all the way to the end. Very dramatically reading, of course, the famous last words. Two roads diverged in a wood and I, I took the one less traveled by and that has made all the difference. And then she launched into a speech, of course, very impassioned, saying that we need to take the road less traveled, that we need to be individuals, that we need to dare to be unique, that we need to think about our unique impact on the world. The world needs you. We are the generation that will change everything. And the, on and on and on, all the statements that you might hear in a graduation speech were there. This kind of stifling optimism, this kind of view of the world that was so pure and so nostalgic. Well, there's a couple of problems uh, with her speech. And uh, one of them is that she misreads Robert Frost, which is really neither here nor there, but I thought I might mention it uh, just because Everyone does, and if you've seen even Dead Poets Society, even Dead Poets Society gets it wrong because the poem is not serious in its message. In fact, Robert Frost, after he wrote the poem and it started making an impact, um, he was amused and surprised to see that people were taking his message seriously. Actually, the poem was written for his friend, Edward Thomas, and Thomas and he would hike together, and it would always drive him crazy that, uh, that Edward Thomas would, would, would second-guess their path. They would be going, and they would try to make a decision, like, maybe we should go left, maybe we should go right. And, and, and he would always be indecisive, and then he would always say things like, ah, oh, we should have taken that other path. And so he wrote this poem as a joke to his friend. Because if you read the poem carefully, though there is a slight difference in the path, the main portion, the middle portion of the poem says that the paths are basically identical. Both that morning equally lay, and leaves no step had trodden black. You know, uh, the, uh, though, though the, as for that, the passing there had, had really warned them about the same. The, these paths were basically identical to each other. And then he says, with a kind of whimsical air in the last verse, this kind of nostalgic um, you know, somebody picturing a grandpa, you know, like, uh, I shall be saying this with a sigh. Somewhere, ages and ages hence, there were two roads diverged in a wood, and I took the one less traveled by. That has made all the difference. It's a joke. That hasn't made all the difference. He was saying this to his friend who said, look, just choose a path. It doesn't really matter that much. And so, he has been misunderstood from the beginning. That's the first problem with <laughs> that. Really doesn't relate, but thought I might tell you. Um, but let's say, that, let's say that she had read it right, or let's say that it, ha that it was true, generally, that what we should focus on at moments of great importance is the optimistic, bright future that remains for us, our own potential. Should we 
envision a dream world where we make all the difference. I imagine her giving that speech and Solomon sitting in the back. And he says, verse 10 through 12, whatever has come to be has already been named. And it is known what man is and that he is not able to dispute with one stronger than he. The more words, the more vanity. And what is the advantage to man? For who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of his vain life, which he passes like a shadow? For who can tell what will be after him under the sun? Basically, humanity is what humanity is. We can't dispute with one stronger than us, than God. That's the one who's stronger than us. And the more words, the more vanity. You can, you can say all kinds of optimistic things. You can say all kinds of things that will hype up what is true to you. But will that make a difference? Who knows, he says. Who can tell what our days will be like and what will be after us? Wouldn't it be better to be more realistic? Is Solomon's point. Wouldn't it be better to live in the reality that what, of what God has given us? And so I've decided that if I ever get invited to do a graduation speech, I'm going to do it on Ecclesiastes. Um, and just bring that perspective. Nobody's asked yet. Uh, but then I realized actually several days in that like, this is graduation time. I didn't, it, really, it took me several days to realize this is the time of the year that people graduate, right? And so, while I have you here this morning, this will be the graduation speech, right? Might as well do it. Not just to our graduates, but to all of us who are thinking about the impact of our lives. Because that's really what graduation speeches are about, right? How can we envision the future impact? And that's a very human question. And Solomon's wisdom to us this morning is this. Sober reality is better than empty optimism. Sober reality is better than empty optimism. His questions ring out at the end of verse 6. I wish it had been included in, verse, in chapter 7 because it really sets up what he comes with next. Who knows? Who can tell what will come after? And then Solomon's answer is basically starting in chapter 7, verse 1 through verse 12, in which he does in a proverb style. You notice, even if you read it in your bulletin, that it's kind of set out, and it looks like the book of Proverbs. It looks like uh, poetic writing, and this is a shift. His writing has been uh, in this other form, this more narrative form, and now he switches to a poetry, to some couplets, to a rhyming, not rhyming, but a, uh, a matching uh, style of poetry. seemingly to tell us that not everything's going to be black and white. I'm going to tell you where wisdom comes from, but you're going, to need to, you're going to need to tease this out a little bit. You're not going to see it as black and white. It's not as simple as your optimistic statements that you just live into. You need to see reality. Sometimes a cliche is wrong. Sometimes a cliche is right. You need wisdom to be able to discern the two. And so he switches to this wisdom style of writing. And then he gives us what seems at first to be a random list. Talking about a good name, talking about laughter and foolishness and mourning and the house of mirth. And um, 
You know, why are, the form, why are the former days better than these? Like, there seems to be kind of a random list of wisdom here, but actually there is a hidden structure to the whole passage. It's centered on the word good, the Hebrew word tov, which is translated in the passage both good and better. If you read through, you'll see a number of times he says, this is good, but this is better. The same word. It's only in English that we have different words for good and better and best, right? Those, that's different in most languages. So, good and gooder. This is what he tells us, a list of comparative statements. In fact, there are six tov statements, six statements about what is good, and they're grouped neatly into uh, sections of, of three, two for each one. And these groups of three then culminate in a seventh tov statement, which is the capstone. It is what is best overall. And so it sits there at the top. It's a beautifully written passage. But let's look first at the three uh, points that he's making with these six statements. And the first point that he's making is this. A sober view of death is better than an empty enjoyment of life. A sober view of death is better than an empty enjoyment of life. Remember, his overall point is that sober reality is better than empty optimism. He's saying specifically when it comes to death and mourning and hardship, it's better than just an empty enjoyment of life that ignores those things. These first four verses are very hard for us to read, very challenging for us to even comprehend. Starts out, simple enough, a good name is better than precious ointment. Now that one's pretty easy for us to understand. Uh, you know, a good name is better than precious ointment. There's precious ointment is good. There's to have, you know, to smell good is good, but a good name is better. And that kind of sets up the way that he's going to reason and lets us know that he's not talking about things that are bad and good. He's talking about things that are good and better. There's nothing wrong with precious ointment. The, the psalms are filled with references to precious ointment. They can be part of worship. It can be part of our wealth. But it's, it's better, he says, to have a good name. And then he goes on into these other pictures. of The positive pictures are feasting, laughter, and mirth. And then on the other side, he has this thinking about death and the house of mourning. Read it with me again. It's better to go to the house of mourning, verse 2, than to go to the house of feasting. For this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of face the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of the fools is in the house of mirth. Now again, he's not saying that the house of mirth, that rejoicing, that feasting, that laughing are wrong things. If you'll remember with our study of the book of Ecclesiastes, each of those things has been commended to us already. He tells us about laughter. He tells us about feasting. Enjoy the good things that God's given to you and tells us about joy and mirth. Enjoy your life has been one of the themes of Ecclesiastes. So he's not saying that these things are wrong. He's saying comparatively, in the search for wisdom, there's a, there's a closer path to wisdom. And it's actually by looking at the sad things. It's actually by looking at mourning and death. And he's not talking about so much one's own death. He's not saying it's better that you would die than that you would live. What he's saying is, 
if you've got a choice between going to the house of mourning and the house of mirth, then you will learn more about wisdom by going to the house of mourning. On balance, it is better you'll learn more about life going to a funeral than going to a party. You'll actually learn more about life going to a funeral than going even to a birth. Even though a birth is magical and there's nothing quite like it, and in just a few weeks I'm going to hopefully witness the fourth one I have seen, it's, it's going to be beautiful, it's going to be sentimental, it's going to be magical, and it's going to be unique, and I'm going to learn things about life through that experience. But, not as much as if I went to a funeral. Why? Because at the beginning, this child is so helpless, and so it's sentimental, but, but the child has no wisdom yet. There's, no, there's been nothing that's happened yet. And Solomon's point, in part, is that we have to get older in order to see some things about life. We have to experience people dying in our families and, and, and knowing people that have died. And, and through that, we actually gain a heart of wisdom. It's not that death is good. He's saying, look, if you're going to learn wisdom, pay attention to this even more than this. Age does not always equal wisdom. We're going to see that in just a few minutes. But age is part of wisdom, and the experience of death and being around it actually changes us. I remember in high school, I went to a big enough high school where uh, I was acquainted with, at least, if not friends with, several people who died over the four years where I was in high school. And often they were in alcohol-related or drunk-driving type incidents. And I remember this, uh, this, this acquaintance of mine who passed away and I had a mutual friend uh, with him, and it was after a party that they had been to together that this person left and then died in a car accident. And I, I was talking to this mutual friend who was kind of part of that scene, that, that was not a part of it, but it was kind of a party scene, and he said, you know what, we're going to take a few weeks off from partying, because, you know, I don't think anybody wants to do that right now with the passing of this young man. Going to the house of mourning literally sobered them. But in the same way, it sobers all of us. This is the end of all mankind. The wise will lay it to heart. The wise will see that mourning teaches us so much about life. Do we lay it to heart? Do we lay it to heart the mourning and the sadness and the death that we see around us? Or is it something that we run from? We run from them emotionally. We run from it physically. Some of us even avoid going to funerals. Well, the wisdom of Solomon is that you should go there. Not all the time, but some of the time, because that's eventually where everyone ends up. And the wise will lay it to heart. Now, he's not saying that sadness is somehow per se, or by definition, better than happiness. That's a misreading of this. Because look, he says in verse 3, sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of face the heart is made glad. We believe that we're heading towards gladness. We believe that God's purposes for the world are good. It's not as though sadness and mourning are part of His delight or His design. This is reality though. 
and your gladness should be based in reality. It's by the sadness of face that the heart is made glad. If you can't recognize the sad things, then you can't be glad about the glad things because there are lots of sad things. Sober view of death is better than an empty enjoyment of life. Secondly, sober rebuke is better than empty praise. Sober rebuke is better than empty praise. Look at verse 5 with me through verse 7. It's better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of the fools. This also is vanity. Surely oppression drives the wise into madness and a bribe corrupts the heart. This is talking about graduates and those of us who are thinking about the impact of our life. What is the impact of other people's influence on us? And he says, the person that you should listen to is the wise person even if and especially if it's painful. Hebrews chapter 12 says that for the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. The wise rebuke is better than the praise of fools. In fact, what foolishness looks like, verse 6, probably should explain this image. He says, the crackling of thorns under a pot. Thorns aren't usually used for wood to, to warm up something, but if you've ever used thorns or dried out you know, pieces of thin, thinner pieces of wood, you'll know that if you throw it on a fire, it it crackles. It, for a moment, the fire gets bigger and, and then it goes down again. And there's a sound associated with these old thorns thrown on a fire. And so he says, that's what fool's laughter is like. You throw that on the fire and it's like for a moment, there's just like this applause. You know, it's like this shh. But then it goes out. For a moment, it produces something, the laughter of fools, but it produces no heat. It doesn't sustain the pot, so to speak. There will always be people around who are willing to flatter you and who are willing to take your side in anything. That's always the case. Someone will, will want to abandon serious reflection and will want to say things to you about yourself that encourage you and lighten you up. Now, if a wise person tells you to lighten up, that's different. <laughs> Some of us need to hear the message of lightening up, right? But many of us prefer to go to that rather than to take seriously a rebuke that we hear. And Solomon says, on balance, it's better for you to listen to that wise person than to seek comfort or solace from someone who just wants to please you. If someone who doesn't know your situation well, they have an incentive to just make you happy, watch out. Because even your moral compass can be compromised. What he says here, the oppression, oppression drives the wise into madness and the bribe corrupts the heart. You know, a wise person is not going to be influenced by oppression. They, they can't stand being around it. But a bribe for the fool can actually can turn their heart. It, it can make them into a different person. 
once you've done a little bit of wrongdoing, once you've accepted something as a reality that isn't true, you can compromise your very heart. And so Solomon says to all of us who are thinking about the impact of our lives, a sober view of death is better than an empty enjoyment of life, and a sober rebuke is better than empty praise. Thirdly and finally, sober patience is better than empty reactions. Sober patience is better than empty reactions. Look at verse 8-10 through 10 with me. Better is the end of a thing than its beginning. And the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Be not quick with your spirit to become angry. For anger lodges in the heart of fools. Say not, why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. And we have a series of reactions A patient spirit is better than several other things, he says. The sins of pride, anger, and nostalgia. These kind of reactions. A pride in spirit, he says. Patient in spirit is better than proud in spirit. What about that anger? An anger, I love the image where he says it gets lodged literally in the chest. I think we know that feeling, right? You know that feeling of being angry? that you're carrying it. It's just in your chest. Nostalgia. Say not, why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. Now what's the, what's the thing that draws together that anger and that pride and that nostalgia? All of them are impossible to do when you're being very patient. <laughs> They're all the kind of reactive way of living. They're a way of of, of quickly going somewhere to solve life's complexity rather than being patient and trying to tease it out. Then you quickly go to nostalgia. Oh, it's just that things are bad now. Or you quickly go to anger. Or you quickly go to pride. These are kind of reactions where the wise do not go. They also, these certain reactions, tend to increase as we age. Whereas the sins of empty enjoyment from the first point, merriment, uh, only pursuing laughter and fun and enjoyment, those, might, we might say, are disproportionately affect the young. The sins of pride, anger, and nostalgia can disproportionately affect the older. But it's not of wisdom that you say these things. What he's saying is, whether young or old, you can focus on empty things as the answer to life's hardness. Whether you're saying, let's just have fun, or you're saying, let's just go back to the old days, in a way, both of those are cop-outs. They're both ways to short-circuit the process of seeing what would wisdom be in this circumstance for this hard thing. When wisdom demands complexity, don't take that empty, optimistic route. Well, if we just got back to the old days, it would be better. You know, if they were just different than me, you know, if they were just responded differently, I wouldn't be so angry. Sober patience. Patience teaches us a different way, right? To actually take things one step at a time, to look at them with our lives and say, this is the impact of this. This is the impact of my life. When, because I'm in these circumstances and this matters, I need to do this right now. That's better, he says. To have that patient approach than to lump everything into a category that you can understand. On top of these 
three statements, these three couplets of wisdom that Solomon gives, there's a seventh capstone good statement about wisdom. In verse 11, wisdom is good with an inheritance, an advantage to those who see the sun. For the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money. And the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. Here, wisdom is compared to an inheritance. What is, how is it like an inheritance? It's a good that is expected, but that is also delayed. Like an inheritance can be expected. One day it will come to those who are patient And it will be a life-giving thing when it does. If it comes too early, it will not be good. It can be squandered. And so he says here in the end, wisdom is something that you wait for. It's something patiently sought. It's something hard won. It's something that you get as you get older, hopefully. These are the things that you wait for. There is an inheritance of it that comes if you keep doing these things. And so, graduates, I mean, the young ones and the old ones, (laughs) anybody that wants to think seriously about the impact of their life, these are the things that we commit ourselves to. Not empty statements about the future that we could somehow make true by just saying them loud enough. The sooner that you submit to reality, the sooner the inheritance of wisdom comes. I I recently uh, heard a comedian, I actually don't remember who it was, uh, may have just been a clip or something, but um, one-liner joke, and it was it was really good. I laughed out loud. <laughs> he said, "Anybody in the, anybody in the room over 30?" And uh, you know, everybody just you know, Whoop, I'm here, you know. Um, and then he just asked one question. This was the whole joke. Do you remember when you were the future? <laughs> That's it. Because the truth is, young people, when you're over 30, nobody says that to you anymore. Nobody says, you're the future now. At some point, that fizzles out. And you become the joke. Not unlike Edward Thomas, right, on Two Roads Diverged in the Yellow Wood, who believed, you know, that his choice would make all the difference. In reality, Solomon says, who knows what our lives will hold? We don't know. So wisdom says, take it down a few notches on the optimism scale. Why don't you think about your own death? Think about the reality of the shortness of life. Lay it to heart. Listen to those who will rebuke you. And learn to fight your anger and your pride and your nostalgia because With those things, it's impossible to remain patient for the inheritance of wisdom that is coming. You can see why I'm not invited to do these graduation speeches. We have an opportunity this week, Holy Week, to practice this. Today is Palm Sunday, when we remember an enthusiastic crowd greeting Jesus, saying true things to him. Hosanna, the son of David. He is the one who saves. He is the son of David, the promised one. But behind it, a thought of what he could be rather than who he is. Not living in reality. Not seeing that this humble king comes on a donkey 
And all the small things that Pastor Eric mentioned this morning, all the small things that he came, this humble king. And he takes his people, not first to the house of mirth and laughter and gladness, but to the house of mourning. He takes us to the cross. He shows us what the reality of our sin does to Him and to the world. How might our empty optimism about life be shaping our view of who Jesus is? Is He our coach? Is He in our corner? Is He our right-hand man? Is He our help? That lifeline when we need it? Or is He the suffering Savior without whom you have no reason for an optimistic future, but through whom you have every hope because of what He has done. As we come to Good Friday, we will have the opportunity to practice the wisdom of Solomon to go to the house of mourning. To not turn away. Not turn away from suffering or sadness that he experienced. Are we willing in a limited way to see that suffering that we inflicted on Him by our sin on this spotless Lamb of God? Can we be sobered by His suffering while we hold up our own suffering and are sobered by it too? That all happens before Easter. And Solomon says, it's through by the sadness of the face that the heart is made glad. Gladness is in the end. Gladness is Easter. But the the beautiful sunrise of Easter only makes sense if it comes from the the crushing night of Calvary. Where what Christ has done in going to the house of mourning, what He suffered on our behalf, What we continue to suffer because of the effects of sin, whether it's our own sin or the sin of others or the sin that has created brokenness throughout the whole world, we all know this. Can we face it? Like Solomon tells us to do, because there is gladness on the other side. There is a resurrection after the death. Let's pray.